Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. When I think back on some of the most amazing accomplishments I've seen, there are two that come to mind. One conquers height. It's when tightrope walker Philippe Petit crossed a wire he'd secretly set up between the two towers at the top of the World Trade Center in New York in August of 1974. Not only did Philippe traverse that wire eight times using a 55-pound balancing pole for about 45 minutes, there were moments when he laid on his back on that wire more than a 1,000 feet above street level. To get the full story, check out the documentary Man on Wire. Richard Branson once told me that it was his favorite film. The other phenomenal achievement? That conquers distance. It's when Diana Nyad swam from Cuba for more than two straight days, roughly 110 miles among sharks and poison jellyfish to reach the coast of Florida. It was her fifth attempt. Her first try came at age 28 in 1978 when I was just beginning my career as a young writer for the Miami Herald. Her successful trip came in August of 2013 at the age of 64. Watch the last few seconds of her journey on YouTube as she stumbles upon land at Key West after 53 hours and you'll get a full understanding as to why it astounds me to this day. And for the full taste, read her book, Find a Way. I've been waiting to speak with Diana ever since she made her first attempt in 1978. When we finally got to sit, our conversation veered and zigzagged to many places. Diana speaks her mind, that's for sure. And all of them will make you think. So without saying any more, I'm just going to thank my sponsors for the support they've given me to do what I do on this podcast. As you'll hear in the mid-roll, Squarespace ZipRecruiter and this podcast have given me an opportunity to change some lives. But for now, let's get straight to Diana Nyad. Diana, I have waited 40 years for this moment. 40 years. Now, I know you know where you were in August of 1978, but you may not know where I was. While you were swimming from Cuba toward Florida, I had just taken a job for the Miami Herald. I'm 21 years old, right out of college, first job, and I have this, this amazing job because I'm working in a little bureau in West Palm Beach. And the job is, Cal, you're a writer. We want you to be great. Every day you wake up and you find a great story and you write it and it'll be in the paper the next day. So I am attuned to finding great stories, epic stories. And all of a sudden, I have just started this job. I hear, there's this woman Her name's Diana Nyad, and she is trying to swim between Cuba and the United States. And I said, I got got to 
go and I got to be part of this. I got to write this story. So I call up the big boys down in Miami and like, Cal, you just started. You're out in West Palm Beach Bureau, a little office there. We, we have our people on it, okay? And so I can't get to you. But I w- would go to the ocean and I would look as far as I could into the horizon. And I realized you're swimming farther than I can see. And then as time passes, I guess you veered a little off course and the swim has to end. You don't make it at that point. And I've been linked to you ever since that day in August in 1978. And then five years ago, I, I, I'm following, following, following. And then all of a sudden... I see on television the last few steps that you take when you complete this swim at age, what, 63? 64. 64? This is like 40 or 35 years later. And I'm watching as you're coming out of the water. And it's almost like you're discombobulated because you've been swimming so long. And now you've got your feet on the ground. And I like is she gonna is she gonna make it? And then you've got Bonnie, who's been with you every stroke of the way in front of you, like coaxing you to get to the sand and, and officially make it. And then you make it, and there's tears streaming down my face. And now, 40 years later, I get to have the interview, the conversation that I've always wanted to have. So thank you for being here. Well, Cal, thank you so much. I wish you had been that cub reporter who had come out on the boat that time. I bet you would have written, as you've written so beautifully all through the years, something poetic about the whole thing. Well, I was very rough and just getting started then, but I knew what a great story is. And you, you have taken that moment and then exponentially driven it to the heavens. And I guess my first question is, like, you you did this over a period of decades. Did you have everything that you needed inside you to make that crossing when you were a little kid? It just needed to find its way out of you? Or is this something that has to be built step by step over time? You know, it's an intriguing question because the phrase that you focus on there is inside of you. So not did you have the, let's say, exterior athletic ability. Clearly, that's what's needed first. The physical comes first. Everybody says, is it more physical? Is it more mental? The physical comes first. You could never, I don't care how strong your will is, how, how, how powerful your mind is, if you haven't put in those hundreds of thousands of hours for the shoulders and for the triceps and for the body to withstand those elements, you know, you, you, you can't talk yourself into it. You can't train for Mount Everest just by sitting in a room and believing you can do it one day. You've got to have the altitude training and get your legs ready and the whole thing. So, but I'll I, I tell you the truth. 
I do believe in this sport would be different if I were a basketball player where quick white you know, uh, cell reaction is important. They call it white fiber reaction. That was what make LeBron James jump up to the sky to reach the reach the hoop. This is red fiber. It it's slower. It it's a it's a an ability to use oxygen more efficiently than other athletes. Michael Phelps has said to me directly, "I could never do that swim." I, I, I just I, I, I would be exhausted by the end of several hours, much less 53 hours of nonstop <laughs> swimming. He doesn't have the right constitution, even though he can swim from this end of the pool to the other faster and more beautifully than anyone who's ever lived. But this is a particular talent. So physically, you could say, you know, I like to joke, Cal, that back in my 20s when I first tried the Cuba swim and I was doing all the other swims on this blue jewel of a planet of ours, um, I was more of a thoroughbred horse. I was lean. I was fairly fast in the ocean, not like an Olympic swimmer, but fast for an ocean swimmer. I could cover miles in a very quick pace. And I was often vulnerable to flus and colds. I would I'd be more tired. It took me longer to recuperate. When I came back in my 60s to again try this, and everybody would ask me, what would make you think if you couldn't do it when you were 28 at the prime of your career, holding all these world records, why would you think at the advanced age of 60 that you'd have something going for you? And actually, I think I was a better athlete inside and out than I was back in my 20s. Now I'm more of um, what I like to call a Clydesdale. I have a, <laughs> I have a little more girth to me. I have a little more power. So I don't swim as fast mile per mile, not that much slower, but not as fast, but I'm tough. I feel like, you know, I could, I could, I could get out of the water after a 16 hour training swim and walk through a brick wall. I'm not beaten down. I never get colds. I never never get flus. I just have a stronger constitution. But bigger than that, your phrase, inside of you, were you a better, were you better prepared? Was there something inside of you that made you capable of doing this at 64? Better than when you were 28? Yes. I was all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it grew, it evolved, but I was in awe of this life we get to live. As we all get older, we get we get more like that, don't we? We get more appreciative, more grateful for every day. And my mother had just died, and I thought, wow, I miss my mom, but also she was 82. Could, could it be as strong and vital as I feel? Could it be genetically that in, in 20 years, that's all I got? That's all I got left on this planet? So you're all of a sudden filled with this, even as an atheist, uh, Oprah called me an atheist in awe. So I even <laughs> filled with this awe at the universe, at the planet, reading Stephen Hawking in Cuba the night before the swim about the formation of the universe out there under the four billion stars that you can literally see in the Gulf Stream in the middle of summer up at night. I wasn't in awe of any of that at 28. I was all about me my success my you know my my uh, my thing my mojo now i became about others i was much kinder to my team i was much more in need of my team when bonnie didn't want to do it the fifth time i thought not only do i think maybe i can't make it without her i thought i don't want to i want to share this we did all this together we did all the research we gathered the the esteemed team together and i said to my team 
two hours from the from the finish, the palm trees were now visible. You I mean your eyes are just dead tired. You're, you're not focusing on much. But I saw the waving palm trees off in the distance, and I I I, I, I didn't see the people gathered on the beach, but I knew there was a scene. I was told by Bonnie, and I asked my team to gather around me. John Bartlett, our navigator, brought the whole team around, and I cried, and I said to them, "Look, I guess." I'm going to walk up on that beach pretty soon. I guess somebody's going to take my photo. But don't you ever forget, we did this. We did this together. We made history together. I could have never given that authentic speech at the age of 28. So yeah, I involved a lot internally as an athlete. And I also think even physically, I was better as an athlete at 64. Now you asked me at 94, you know, uh, if, if, I if, if I'm right there, you, you ask me, but right now I can say in, in, I'm 68 now, almost 69. I could say I'm, I'm as capable of anything I've ever done in my life at this age. When you were five, six years old, was there something in your head that was saying, find a way that attracted you to people who found a way or did that come later in life? I don't know about that young, but I think before double digits. Um, it's funny now, I think, will I make it to triple digits? Um, but I think you, know, you will. No doubt, but let's hope it's with some, uh, you know. It's how you something positive to bring to it. But <laughs> I think you know, my mother will would say that when I was, you know, maybe eight and nine. So what? Are, what's a kid in third, fourth grade? That for some reason I can't remember, Cal. Well, you know, why was it? Was it some lecture I heard, or it wasn't from my parents directly? I know that I had this. I got early on, which usually we don't get to later in life, a pressure. I got I got a feeling of whoa, this thing is fleeting. It's screeching by this life. I better I better get with it. I better not sit around like all these friends of mine are doing and just let it all float by. I want to grab it like a tiger by the tail, be everything I can be, go everywhere I can go. And so I'm a kid, you know, I, I there's sort of self-aggrandizing goals. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a great athlete. I want to speak all the languages of the world. I want to help everybody. I want to so, say, you know, it's kind of absurd, but the, but the notion of very little time left hit me early. And that's been the drive. That's been the drive ever since. You know, people think that all I, uh, my real value is chasing big, grand dreams that are close to impossible. You don't care if you fail because you'll discover yourself. You'll inspire everybody around you. Fair enough. I have a bit of that about me. The Cuba Swim certainly encapsulated that. But really, there's a bigger umbrella ethic of my life, which is more engage. Those are the people I admire. Not, not, not famous people. I, I admire Barack Obama terribly. Um, I admire Bill Gates. I don't know. Bill and Melinda Gates, I think, give 100% of their income now you know, to infectious disease control. I, I admire all kinds of uh, well-known people. But more than that, I admire the woman in my neighborhood who, whose husband died. And she's raising three kids on her own now. She doesn't just 
sit there and lock her door and isolate herself and do her best to take care of her kids. She goes out and helps everybody else in the neighborhood with their problems, even though she's the one with little time, few resources. I admire people who engage in their neighborhoods. They engage in their families. They engage in their own potential. And they are going to go to sleep every night saying, Ooh, there's nothing more I could have done with that day. They're not sitting, not to, not to knock watching television, but let's just use that as a, an example. They're not sitting in front of a screen, you know, 18 hours a day, not putting anything into their lives. They're engaging. That's what I admire. And I got that young. I got, well, that's get, up, get up and go. When you're 9, 10, 11, 12, what are you reading or looking at that's pushing this psychology along? Yeah, I got very involved early on in lay astrophysics. So, you know, even at 10, you, now, could, at you, 10 you, were... yeah, you could read Carl Sagan at 10. Okay. That was his brilliance. He was a storyteller, you know, and he could, he could speak to even a 10 year old about the magic of the universe and, and, you know, spark our curiosity to what it, what is up there and when, how did we get here and where are we going from here? And are there other people like us somewhere? All those macro questions that we're still chasing after today, you know, I mean, we're, we're kind of still chasing Einstein, aren't we? Uh, that's a name of a new documentary film that's coming out. That's, that's brilliant about all these astrophysicists today say we don't know very much we don't we don't know much past what what i what the brilliant einstein discovered a hundred years ago but now there's this thing called dark matter what is that we we can't even define it is it is it a bunch of particles is it waves is it is it just a concept um and so they're they're befuddled and bewildered and and i am too and so i read all these people i can't read real mathematical physics i, I don't have that capability but since i've been a little kid i've been reading about the universe the, let's call the, the 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 chaos of the cosmos that's what's attracted me and that hooks right into you better do everything you can with your life if you don't believe there's an afterlife if you're not a religious person and you're going go heading right to heaven and everything's going to be beautiful and and uh, you know peaceful up there which which I don't believe uh, and and I respect anybody who does I got no argument with 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 Jews and Christians and Buddhists and anybody who believes in, you know, a lot of religious concepts. Who knows? That's why it's called faith. It's up to each one of us to, to define our own faith. For me, I'm a, I'm a tried and true atheist. I have been since I've been eight, nine years old. And so the, the curiosity about space and the cosmos gloves right in with wanting to live the best life I can. I have those same precepts that religious people supposedly do. Leave the world a better place. Do unto your brother as you would want him to do unto you. All of that stuff. I want to live a good life. I want to inspire people to be everything they can. I want to be everything I can. And, um, and it all goes by too quickly. Were you attracted to people who had survive through difficult circumstances and push themselves as far as they could when you were young? You know, the real memory I have of a biography um, that I was attracted to, and I must have watched the Burt Lancaster movie 30 times, was the Jim Thorpe story. So, you know, here he is, an American Indian, a Native American, um, didn't do too well in school. So he was, you know, he wasn't a shining scholar, but he was just, he was undeniable in his beauty. He was, if Mark Spitz was born to swim, 
the the role Burt Lancaster played of Jim Thorpe was he was born to jump and to run and to and to feel joy in it. And then there was football as well. So it's not like he overcame something huge, but he was shunned at school. Uh, he wasn't going to be some Rhodes scholar and going off to Oxford. And um, he he did what he was he was born to do. And so and I just I I, I fell in love with that character. And then later in life, you know. I really can't remember how old I was. I might have been in my 20s or 30s. I went to give a talk and at a university, and I mentioned the sexual abuse I had been through as a teenager with my coach on stage that night, just part of a life story. So and this I, is in Florida? No, this or wasn't this? in Florida. No, this was in my 20s or 30s. I wasn't in Florida anymore. I left Florida at age 17. Right, but when you were abused. Oh, well, oh that part. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm sorry. I thought you meant this talk. Right. So I went to give a talk, and um, I, I just kind of glanced over this sexual abuse issue. It, it, you know, it's a, and, and now that we're in the Me Too generation, and I've written this rather powerful piece for the New York Times that, that has uh, kind of received a tsunami of response, and now I'm trying to be involved with the um, National Archive of Sexual Abuse in Washington. Uh, terrific people like Reese Witherspoon are helping to fund it, et cetera. Um, now, now I'm out speaking the story more and more and may write a book this year about it, but I went and, and I, to give this speech at a university right now. I, I, honestly, it's so long ago I can't remember where, but but I remember the night because at the end of the of the talk, and I honestly mention it often on stage because I think people need to see someone who's strong, living a pretty darn good life, fairly successful, fairly happy, uh, get beyond you know that 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 trauma. Of a of a childhood young situation that's humiliating, that's terrifying, that's life changing. It's it silences you, and uh, that that's the anger of it the most. But so the end of the story is, I I just I, I mean literally mention it. I try to deftly throw it into to a life story on stage when I was younger. I, I was taken to this restaurant that night. And it was an, uh, to, to, to be with a lot of the professors and the administrators from the university. And it was an unfortunate choice of restaurant. It was loud. You could hear every fork clanging and uh, the, the acoustics were terrible. And I was put next to at the dinner table in this big round table. You couldn't talk to anybody but the person right next to you, an elderly woman. And when she reached her arm out to, you know, grab her glass of water, the butter or whatever, I saw the the numbers etched in her wrist. And I said, oh, you're a survivor. And she said, I am. I said, I know this sounds insane. We're in this noisy restaurant. But you and I have been having this intimate conversation, mouth to ear, because we can only hear each other. Do you feel like telling me about it? about it. She was three, Krakow, Poland. Her father said, now that the uh, Jews in their neighborhood were being rounded up and sent to Birkenau and Treblinka and Auschwitz, he said, if they come to here, to our house, they can kill me. I'm not going. They can shoot me dead right here. Well, they did. They came to get their family. They shot the father dead because he wouldn't go. Um, the mother and her six-year-old daughter and this woman, the three-year-old, went together on some horrible train ride in the winter, peeing and pooping on the floor of the train, just inhuman. They get off at the at the death camp. They walk down the stairs of the train. The mother and the sixteen-year-old, six-year-old, are hustled 
over, ushered to the right, and this three-year-old, she's telling me the story in this restaurant, are hustled over to the left. And now I'm thinking of my own little story that I just told that night. And she was made, Cal, that day into the SS officer's little concubine. For the next two and a half years, until the resistance saved, you know, all the people at that particular camp, she every day had oral sex, anal sex, intercourse, you name it, with these grown men. She was three, and then four, and then five. I started to weep at this restaurant. She held my hands. She was she was about like four foot 11. She took me over into the corridor with the waiters coming in and out, and she said, you know, I heard your story tonight, and I said, well, that's why I'm crying. I'm so ashamed of ever mentioning my little story compared to what you went through. How did you ever get this light in your eyes? You've shown me pictures of your husband who's passed now and your children and your grandchildren. You're esteemed at this university. How did that ever happen after that? She said, because when I was rescued, I was adopted by a French family. The day I got to France and that mother took me into the backyard, she held me and she said, I think it would be best if you told me the whole story. Get it out. Let's just get it out. And I can never replace your mother, but we are going to make a meaningful, loving family for you right here in France. She told the story. The mother had no idea what she was about to hear. And when they finished, they both cried together. She held this little girl and she said, tomorrow you are going to take this story and you're going to stuff it into your soul, a dark corner of your soul, because you'll never be able to forget it. But you're not going to live it on your skin because you can't believe it, but people are good. Most people are good. And you are going to wake up in this house tomorrow. You're going to embrace the sunrise and you're not going to live that story on your skin anymore. You're going to live a beautiful life. And you know what, Cal? I had been in therapist's office. I've been telling that sexual abuse story of mine for for a long time. The same words, trying to get to the same relief of the rage I felt, whatnot. That woman's story that night took me to a different plateau of thinking, okay, it's a dark thing in my soul. I can never forget it, but I'm not living it on my skin anymore. I'm not going to let that take my life down. So um, I forget how we even got started with this, but, uh, well, but that was, you, it was a know, powerful moment for me and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an example of how even a, a lecture, Jack LaLanne heard a lecture when he was 16 years old, impressed him to his core, changed his life. We can, we can rise up with other people's stories. Is this what we're seeing now? And I'll I'll take the conversation back to where we were, but I I don't want to lose this opportunity because we seem to be in a moment of time uh, with what's going on with the women's movement, Me Too, where things are just not going to be the same as they were before. I am so gratified and hopeful by what's been happening since the Harvey Weinstein story broke last October. It may take a long time to change actual laws, but within the walls of Hollywood and sports and science and politics, women are being believed all of a sudden. The same women who have been telling these stories for decades and being 
denigrated and say, you're, well, you're fired. And, and, and the men are not only remain where they are, they're, you know, given promotions and all kinds of money. We are now believing these stories. When someone comes to NBC and says, Matt Lauer did this to me, they took 48 hours to take their, their and I know Matt, I, I know him as a very nice, gentle guy, but evidently he had some other uh, misbehaved is a nice way to put it side. That, that group of executives at NBC did the right thing in 48 hours. They took their guy who was making multiple millions, the, the highest paid guy at NBC News, and corroborated her story, found out one other who told a very similar story, and boom, he's gone. That never would have happened in our culture 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago. So the Harvey Weinstein story was all about Hollywood, but now we're talking about raising money and protecting women in, in the farm culture and the factory culture and, and everywhere they go that why should they have to sit through disgusting, you know, penis jokes when they're getting ready to, you know, have a conference call, uh, you know, with, with a group of men, why should they? Women do have, not, have not done that to men. And so, you know, I'm very, very, as I said, um, hopeful that we are making gigantic cultural steps of change, even before the legalities and the regulations come behind them. I was at Gleason's gym in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago, and the owner told me a fact that just kind of shook me by the shoulders, and we're looking up at all of the photos of the boxers on the wall of his office, and you see there's Muhammad Ali and Jake LaMotta and uh, just all the great champions. And I was asking him how many champs had come through Gleason's, and he pointed out a very a, a fact that may not surprise you. Maybe it's going to bring a smile to your face. But he said, we have seven champions, seven world champions training in this gym right now, all of them female. Mm. Cool. And I thought, wow, where did that come from? But it, it, it seems like there's just going to be a different psychology that women have going forward. And I, I've gone out of my way now to talk to as many women as I can about this. Because for 20 years, I was working at Esquire. It's a male magazine. It was, I had an exclusive contract. And basically, I was always talking to men. And I've only re now realized I missed half the world. And it, it just seems to me that this time, and, and it's been expressed to me, that the day of Donald Trump's election, by several women said... That, that's the day where everything became different uh, because women just were not going to sit around and, and take it anymore. And I, I'm wondering, is just the telling of these stories over and over, the getting it out of us or throwing it deep down in our souls and just moving on, is, is that 
kind of the secret sauce of it all? Well, you know, I don't know, Cal. I, I would be um, highly reluctant to do any political kind of uh, analysis with you. That's not the world I come from. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, didn't we let Donald Trump get away with, you know, his his misogynist, horrible remarks about grabbing a woman's pussy easy for him. He can get away with it. Then we elected him president of the United States. You may not have liked George Bush, either one of the Bushes, if you're a, if you're a hardcore Democrat liberal, they're decent people. They're moral, decent people, the Bushes, father and son. Um, if you're on the other side, you may not have been a fan of Barack Obama's and some of his um, politics and decisions. He's a dignified human being. Now we have a vulgar, undignified, not to mention uneducated and dangerous narcissist in the White House. And so, you know, to think that, oh, all of a sudden, because Trump's in office, we're paying attention to women. It's despite Trump being in office. Well, that, that you was know, my the point. The sexism that right. he has brought, the racism, hatred, sexism, bigotry that he brings to his speeches, to his fan base is, um, you know, is not is not helpful and it's not forward moving. It's not progressive. Trump in office is just a negative all the way around to people of color, to gays, to to, to women. Um, so, you know, I just can't wait for us to get him out of there. Well, I, I've been just listening to people. And, and so all these thoughts and ideas are kind of bubbling around my head. But I, what I'd really like to do is go back to the place we were at where we were kind of moving toward your journey to have the idea to swim between. Yeah, we better get off the Trump <laughs> issue because, first of all, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not speaking from a from a, a politically educated place, so uh, you already well, heard what I think. Let's let it ride. You know? Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll let it go. And so what is it? And, and you mentioned before, just in case people haven't read Find a Way, which I would advise them oh, yeah, to read. Oh, yeah, got to read that. Uh, and seeing some of your talks on YouTube, uh, it, it was a swimming instructor who uh, abused you when you were young. And, and yet swimming kept taking you to new places. What was it that kind of propelled you to the idea of swimming between Cuba and Florida. Well, first of all, you know, it's kind of uh, the facile aspect of it is that most of us, and especially when we're kids, but I think throughout our lives, we do things we're good at. You know, if, if I had just loved oil painting and I and I had read all the stories of Monet and Chagall and when I was a kid, and I was, I had, I had a French mother who was... Um, you know, quite versed in the arts. And, you know, I went to Paris with her as a young kid and I, and I did see Monet and Chagall. And, um, but, but let's just say I, I, I have Cal, I mean, it, I have a lot of talents. I, I must say I do. I can whistle. I can play a great bugle. You can I'm, sing. I'm, I'm going to sing. You, you, can, I, I, you can sing like I, Janis Joplin. You, well, you wouldn't want to hear me sing for too long, but I can. I, I have talents. I can tell a good story on stage, et cetera, but I have no artistic, a, a, a brush or a, or a pencil or a, a charcoal in my hand cannot render 
anything that's interesting or beautiful. But so let's say I had said to my parents when I was uh, seven, you know, hey, you know, I want to start taking up oil painting. Can we afford to get canvases? Can I take some uh, some lessons or whatever, you know, go, go to a teacher? I guarantee I wouldn't have stuck with it very long because there might have been passion there and an interest. But when you're truly not gifted at things, you usually gravitate toward the things you're good at. You know, you, you get pats on the back. I was good at swimming. The first time I, I dived into a pool, the hands could feel the water. I could get up on top of the water. These are things that are even before you know what the heck you're doing and you have true stroke instruction. You know, when you see a beautiful runner gliding across the uh, plains in Africa, you just say, okay, I'm never going to run like that. that that's, a, that's a natural beauty of a runner. I was good in the water. I do have other talents, but I was in a, in a, Cosmos, shall we say, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the Swimming Hall of Fame, the International Swimming Hall of Fame is there. Many Olympic swimmers came back and made their lives, had their children in that town. We had we had a, an upper upper elite echelon of swimming in my town, and I was good at it. So I was never the the quick sprinter Olympic quality, but I could swim beautiful, graceful, gliding miles and laps. And I didn't find out till later there was something called marathon swimming. The earth is seven-eighths water, and, and uh, there are races and solo swims all over the world, from England to Argentina to Canada to Egypt to, to, to Argentina. Did I say that? Already. Anyway, um, I didn't find out till I was about 19 years old that there was this other sport. So if you weren't that quick to become an Olympian, which I wasn't, but you had a you had a feel for the water and you could glide, and then you had this ability to to use maximize oxygen use as I did, um, you know, I, I stuck with something that I was good at. So there's that. I also felt safe. Once I started being molested by my coach, um, I was 14 years old. Um, I was, I was naive. I, I barely knew what it was. The first time was a, um, was a shock if I wanted to try to take myself back to that memory right here sitting with you. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd go into close to a catatonic state. It was that, it was that, it was that, um, disturbing to my system. I, and then here's this person I admire the most in all the world, my coach, my coach who believed in me, who read my record report card with me and told me I was smart and funny. I could do anything I want in this life. And now he's salivating. He's disgusting. He's on top of me is, is, you know, it's oh, just, uh, yeah, I could get more graphic, but it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's humiliating. It's, it's, uh, it changes your entire young life. Now I'm, I'm different with my teammates. I don't know who to tell. I didn't tell anybody. I was embarrassed. And then it went on. The first time is, is, which is often the syndrome of young people. The first time is a, is a violent, uh, event. And then it becomes a coercion. I need this. You don't know what this is all about. You're young. One day you'll understand, but I need this. And you're never going to be a champion unless you do this. And you can never tell anybody, this is our little secret. This is our special secret. Almost every girl, younger boy, who's raped and molested young, the perpetrator uses those words. This is our special little secret. You're going to be in such trouble. You'll never be a champion. You'll never graduate. You'll never go to college if you tell anybody. And I was pinned under that story. So, you know, the swimming, when I got into a pool, even when I went out in the ocean, I was safe. He couldn't touch me. 
I was safe. Oh, and so man. I was not only good at it, and I was in an environment that, that valued it, swimming, and I had teammates then we would go to U.S. nationals and big regional meets, and I, you know, I felt proud of myself, and I, I loved being part of that milieu, but I also felt safe. And uh, at least when I was in the water, I, I could glide under the water, I could get up on top, I could feel my power, and I was untouchable. So there was all that even before I became wow. a marathon swimmer and was really my sport in my 20s. Time for a word about my sponsors. This week, I want to thank Squarespace and ZipRecruiter in a different way. For about half a year now, I've been suggesting that you power your website with Squarespace over and over, week after week. I've explained how it can enable you to get your message out clearly and with elegance. That's why I power CalFussman.com with Squarespace. If you go to Squarespace.com, and use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you'll get 10% off your next website or domain name. Good things will happen. I promise. Check out the series of positive reverberations that Squarespace has enabled to come out of this podcast. Now, last week's episode featured Mick Ebeling of Not Impossible Labs. Mick's team is working on a device that can stop the tremors in those who have Parkinson's disease. Ever since that podcast was released, every time I looked in my inbox and saw the name Squarespace come up, it was attached to a message from a person who knew someone with Parkinson's and wanted to help them with this device. If you know someone who has Parkinson's disease, please reach out to me or Not Impossible Labs through notimpossible.com. This device will be out in a few months, and I think it's going to change lives. Now, not long after the podcast with Mick Ebling came out, I got a call from a guy named Gene Gurkoff. Now, Gene has created an app called Charity Miles in honor of his grandfather, who passed away from Parkinson's disease. He wanted me to tell you about Charity Miles, and that's what I'm going to do, because Charity Miles allows you to earn money for charity simply by walking, running, or biking. That's right. Mission-driven companies make donations in response to you doing exercise. So not only do you get healthier, but you get to direct their donations to more than 40 of the world's top charities. Could be Stand Up to Cancer, the ALS Foundation, or the Michael J. Fox Foundation, that's fighting against Parkinson's disease. There's a lot to choose from. So you improve your health and help somebody else while you're doing so. If this is the first time you're hearing about Charity Miles, it's all because of Squarespace and ZipRecruiter who are bringing my words to you. Now, normally when I mention the name ZipRecruiter, I take time to explain how fast and easy it makes hiring. All you got to do is type in your job description and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours, often a lot sooner. Normally, I tell you to go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get a free trial. 
because I know the people who work there and I know that ZipRecruiter can improve your business. But this week, I simply want to say thank you to ZipRecruiter for getting behind me from the very beginning. If somebody listening right now goes to the Charity Miles app and exercises to make money for somebody in difficulty, then all those good reverberations will be traced back to ZipRecruiter. And it's the perfect timing for all this messaging. All circles back to today's guest. Diana Nyad is now leading people on EverWalk, the biggest walking initiative in America. You can find out more about that on everwalk.com. That means, let's put this all together, you can sign up to take a long walk with Diana, sign up for Charity Miles, walk with Diana, get healthier, and have a donation made to help someone with Parkinson's disease. Can you see why this podcast feels so right to me? And it all started with the support of Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. You know, here everybody is watching or back in 1978 and you're thinking of the dangers, the the sharks. I, I know you were in a in a tank, a shark tank when you did the the first uh, attempt. Uh, but and then there's the jellyfish and now to hear you say that's the place I was safe. It's like startling to yeah, me. Yeah, I know. It's it's quite the uh, contrast, isn't and, it? Yeah. And did it ever change? Did you always oh, yeah. feel that? No, no. I'm you know I'm like I said I'm 68 in a month I'll be 69, and um, you know like any of us who you know you know what's that old French expression? It goes something like, "If only youth knew more, and people in old age could do more." Once you have all that wisdom. Wow. Well, I'm at this kind of magical state of life right now where I have a lot of vigor and a lot of youth. And it's partly because I work hard at it. I'm just in, in a, if I might say so myself, extraordinary level of fitness. But um, I have all this, what, what one gets by close to the age of 70, a lot of life lived, a lot of perspective, uh, as I said before, a lot of awe and, um, and, and, and gratitude. And so, you know, I, I'm sort of at this at a juncture that I might call the absolute prime of life. There's no doubt in my mind that so far my 60s, it was it was the Cuba swim, but now it's post-Cuba swim. I'm living at a, at, a, at, a, at a higher altered state than I've ever been at before. So that sexual abuse, in part meeting that woman from the Holocaust, in part just growing older and being loved by people and, and uh, finding my own kind of peace as I can, um, I, uh, I like, like in my 60s when I was trying the Cuba swim again, that feeling of rage, that feeling of uh, being safe in the water, that was all gone. I, I was now truly... Oh, you're a different person. Yeah, I'm a completely different person. That doesn't mean that the impact deep down on a cellular level isn't there. But in terms of the everyday, I, I was embracing that swim. Even in, in the grueling hours, I could look up and say to John Bartlett, who was a genius to say, John, I know that this is kind of a simple idea to physicists, but honestly, we're out here swimming under the under the stars of the Gulf Stream, but 
those stars aren't really there. I mean, how can we even fathom that the light from those stars that died millions of years ago, the light is still traveling toward us, so we have this optical illusion that every night we see the Big Dipper. Every night we can count on it. We sail by it. We navigate by it. We we make love by it. We, 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 we have picnics by it at night. It's not really there. Now, those stars are in completely different configurations now, but those, but that light hasn't reached us yet. I mean, John, doesn't that blow your mind? <laughs> so we would have these conversations out there. How fun is that? So I'm more, this time in my 60s, being out in the ocean, I'm not feeling that I need to be safe. And I'm so freaking angry, you know, that I didn't throw this guy off of me. I was strong at the age of 14. I was a muscular swimmer, you know, I was stronger than I am today. I could have thrown him up against a wall and said, you ever come near me again. I'm telling my mother, I'm telling the principal, you'll never work in this town again. Well, that's easy for me to say at this age. I was that age. I was under his influence. I was, I, I, I didn't know what was happening. I just, you know, it was my first time ever being touched in a sexual way. I was, as I said, humiliated. It changed my whole body image. So, so, you know, even by 28, I was several years past it. I was still swimming in that rage, but not in my sixties. I was swimming with a lot of joy. And what, what did you learn from the first trip? that enabled you to succeed decades later? Well, it wasn't just the first. I mean, I tried five times. Right. So there were four voyages. And, you know, every um, Mother Earth adventurer, when you come back from Annapurna, K2, Everest, the big alpine climbs, when you talk to the people who have run across the Kalahari Desert in 124-degree heat, the people who have, uh, I mean, you know, from 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 uh, the great stories of Shackleton and Robert Scott trekking across the Antarctica in the early 1900s, what they learned and what we still learn, every major Mother Earth explorer comes back, failed or successful, and they've been on a learning curve of science, of technology, of how to tap the inner spirit, how to get through the the desperate moments. Um, So from all those four expeditions that my team and I took across, we learned. We were on a steep learning curve of, of knowledge every time we went across. And, and by the fifth time, yeah, we had a little bit better luck with the access to the Gulf Stream. We didn't have such great luck with weather. You always love it to be like like a, they call it the doldrums, a flat skating pond out there. We didn't have that on that fifth. Several people were seasick on board. I was dealing with quite a bit of wave action. The Gulf Stream was luckier, but more than anything, everybody else who had tried Cuba said never again. It is a it is a vast, epic, dangerous wilderness out there. The two people who were stung by box jellyfish, tremendous swimmers from Australia. I just I just bow down to their talents. Um, they they said never ever again will I dip my toe in the waters between Cuba and Florida. The obstacles are so many and so difficult to try to get together on one day. But all of a sudden, John Bartlett, as I 
called him genius before. I'll call him genius again. He figured out how to, with heat sensors, detect a little bit the swirling eddies. There are counterclockwise eddies in the middle of the Gulf Stream. Picture a, a round circle of current in the middle of a current that's already traveling six times your speed to the east. The Gulf Stream above Havana is is heading out toward the Atlantic Ocean and over toward Africa at a speed that's six times, I shouldn't say Africa, it, may, it, it comes back from Africa, but it, may, it makes a turn up the Atlantic seaboard. But above Cuba, it's going due east, and it's going six times my speed. And I'm trying to go due north. So just you know, picture that, you know, axis oh, already. Wow. Those vectors are working against each other. Now in the middle of that big, fat Gulf Stream, because you're in it, for the 110 miles that I was crossing, I was in that Gulf Stream for 80 of those miles. So you're constantly, John is having to navigate every 15 minutes. Let's tack a little bit this way. Let's, she seems strong right now. Let's head her directly into the current for a little bit just to get, to try to make some headway. Now, ooh, she's really, she's really looking weak. Let's have her just go with the stream. stream. Just, just, just let go and go with the stream for a little bit. So he's tacking all the time. And now, by the fifth time, he had figured out with heat sensors, he would go out the day before the swim and put his put his heat sticks in and find out where the stream was a little bit warmer. And he found out that those were the places of this counterclockwise current. Some of them are just a quarter mile across. If we know it's coming up, I can swim around that. Some are 25 miles across in diameter. diameter. So if we come across it then, I can't swim 25 miles around it. I'm already doing something probably impossible in the 110 miles. So we would just learn how to work with it, but we had more knowledge. And um, I have to say, though, I will tell you, it's going to sound braggartly, that no matter how many times I failed, no matter how utterly uh, devastating each failure was after training that hard, putting it together. It's not easy to get into Cuba with all that electronic gear, all the, all the government, you know, agency stuff, uh, putting the team together again. It's a team of 44 people. It's not just five of you going out on a little raft, no matter how down I might be at the moment of us deciding we can't make it this time. Mother nature's too big. It's like being on Everest and a hundred mile an hour winds coming in. You don't say, I'm tough. I'm going to withstand a hundred mile an hour wind. I'm going up anyway. No, you, you pack it up and you go down to save your life and your team's life. So we packed it up four times. I, ne- I never came to a point of I'm too exhausted. I can't make it. I didn't train hard enough. It was a group decision. John Bartlett would come down, kneel down. Bonnie would be there with tears in his eye, her eyes. And they'd say, here's where we are. And here's what's happening. The stream's here. A storm is coming in. The wind is coming here. We can't make it. Do you want to just prove that you can swim another 12 hours, <laughs> even though we're not going to make it? No, we're here to get there. So we gave it up four times because Mother Nature was too powerful. But I never lost resolve. Never. Even on the boat. Going back the endless hours to Key West, jellyfish bites and and uh, you know torn up shoulders and you know you've got you've got deep gashes from the from the salt and salt water exposure. Your mouth is swollen up to four times the size. I would say to Bonnie, you know, but wait hours and hours before we'd reach the docks at Key West. 
listen, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to put it together. We're going to do this better next time. And she say, for God's sake, you know, we tried almost as hard as you did. Can you give us a lousy 48 hours to, to pat ourselves on the back for this attempt? Can you just give us a lousy 48 hours before we start putting it together again? I said, okay, okay. You know, it's, it's only fair. Was there a difference in the first time, which you're 28 years old, and then you're coming back in your 60s, and there's so many technological advances, but you're still up against like the same obstacles, the sharks, the jellyfish, the current. Was there a difference when you came out of the water, when you couldn't make it at 28, as opposed to in your 60s? No, I don't think so. I mean, the clear difference is, as you referenced before, I used a cage, a shark cage. There are several swims in the world where shark cages are allowed um, because of the danger, the clear and present danger. And here you've got the, in these waters, the oceanic white tips, the tigers, the lemons. These are aggressive, fast sharks. They know where you are from 2, 2.2 miles away. You have no idea where they are. They hunt at night. So, you know, in the day, that's fine. You get a, our shark divers can get up on top of our boat and that clear azure blue Gulf Stream, you can see, you can see for, you know, I mean, they will tell you that you can see a good quarter of a mile away, a dark object coming towards you. But at night, the ocean is black. We use no lights. Lights attract jellyfish. Lights attract sharks. You know, my divers put their lives behind mine. When they go down and swim between me and what they they don't know is there and might come thrashing up toward me to take a leg. Um, you know, I love it when you talk to all the shark experts. They say, now listen, sharks are intelligent animals. They don't feed on the homo sapien. You're not their food. They don't, they don't want to eat you. <laughs> right. They won't eat you whole. Only now, if- yeah, they might come up and take a leg. Now, that's a, that's a good possibility. But then I, I say, oh, well, that's not very encouraging. So I, I'm going to lose a leg and have blood gushing when all the other sharks are then going to eat me. They said, yes, that's what's going to happen. If you get your leg taken off, get out in a hurry. So, um, yeah, yeah you know, say, well, thanks a lot. So the clear dif- difference is, I don't criticize any swimmer for swimming in a cage. In Japan, there are several difficult shark-infested waters where swimmers swim. They swim in cages or with nets dragging behind them. Um, I don't criticize any of them. You know, uh, the safety of our lives comes first. It's just an athletic event. It's just an adventure. On the other hand, you make a swim with a shark cage, you got an asterisk next to your name. And I didn't want an asterisk. So when I came back in my 60s, I thought, so what are we going to do? We get to the top shark divers in the world. It started with Luke Tipple. He's an Aussie who's dived with every shark known to mankind. He knows their behaviors. And he'll look me in the eye and say, Diana, I can't promise you because how can I? It's an unknown environment out there. But I will promise you one thing. They'll take me before they'll take you. If they're coming up to take one bite, they're going to take my leg before they take your leg. Well, that's the kind of guy you want on your team. Wow. Yeah, it's heavy, you know. All, all my life, I'll thank those guys. Actually, everybody in the team. Do you know, Cal, that 
For 53 hours, Bonnie stood on the boat. Our boat was called Voyager, off to the side of me by about 20 feet. She never sat down. Not only did she not go to sleep, for 53 hours, she never sat down. She stood with her arms crossed and stared at me. And if I needed food, if I needed communications, if a 60-mile-an-hour wind was coming in, she had the whistle for the signal to communicate with me how how we're going to handle the storm protocol. I mean, everybody on that swim, and by the way, nobody ever got paid a cent, and they gave up a lot of time with their family, with their friends. John Bartlett, I keep talking about John. He's not with us anymore, and I miss him every day. He died just a few months after the swim. Too young, 66. He had a heart heart issue. But John wrote me a a letter when it was over. I put it in the safe deposit box uh, along with the... um, the navigational equipment of the swim. He wrote, Diana, he said, all my friends ask me why. We can understand why she did this, why she took all this time. (laughs) Why him? But why you? Why did you take four years, not to mention earlier times, but in in this era, off your life? You you went broke. You gave up your business of boat building. Um, You had a good deal. You gave it away for all this. Why? He wrote them and said, you know, there's that expression that some people talk the talk, some people walk the walk. I just had to walk shoulder to shoulder with someone I've never seen walk a walk like she walked. She was brave. She was committed. She, the resolve was so inspiring. And you know what? I'd do it all over again. I'd go broke again. And the whole wow. team felt that way. And uh, so you can imagine how I feel about them if they felt that way about me. Bucko is one of our shark paddlers. We had, we, along with the divers, we had always two sh- paddlers near me, one off to the right, one behind. They had these electronic, what they call shark shields. Each one's about big as your palm. And it has a, a snaking antenna that as we start swimming, it snakes back and floats. And those two antennas talk to each other on the two kayaks, the bottoms of them. They create an elliptical field of electricity underneath me that some films will show you sharks don't like and they won't come through the electricity, especially if they're well fed. If they're out in the Gulf Stream, they haven't eaten for a week or two, which can happen. No bait fish out there, no reefs. They will come right through that electricity. They I don't care about it. So my my head kayaker, Bucko, I said to him when we were going to go maybe a fifth time, I said, Bucko, would you be up for going a fifth time? I know you've missed a lot of work. You missed time away from your son and whatnot. He said, Diana, I repair refrigerators. That's my job. Out with you, I am having an epic experience. It's changed my life. It's made me want to live my life bigger than I've ever lived before. I don't care if you continue to fail and you continue to try for the rest of your life. I'll be your kayaker every time. So we made it the fifth time. So luckily we didn't have to ask that question anymore. Would you go again? It's done. Could you sense during the fifth time? Yeah, this is the one. No. I believed every time. <laughs> every time I was, an, it's like a boxer, you know, who every time they go in, they say, this is, I'm going to clobber this guy. He's going to be seeing stars. And then when they see stars, they go, oh, holy shit, what happened? So uh, every time when I stood on the shore of Cuba, I won't, I won't tell you I wasn't afraid. You know, I won't tell you that. It's a, it is a dangerous world out there, especially when you leave the shark cage behind. Those box jellyfish, I'd actually rather see a 14-foot uh, tiger shark face-to-face where I have some chance to see its face 
You know, even if my guys were with me, take a knuckle and try to punch it in the nose, then a box jellyfish. It's only the size of a sugar cube. It's the most deadly venom on planet Earth. I, I, I thought I was in another world of hot, burning oil. I couldn't, my spinal cord was being paralyzed. My, uh, you're in the middle of uh, shock. You're screaming out to Bonnie, 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 I, I can't breathe. Hell yeah. So I, I lived through that. I don't know how. I swam through the whole night and the whole next day, stung again the next night. So, you know, this, this, it's not hyperbole to say you, you reach a couple of life or death moments and oceanic white tip trailed us for quite a while on the fourth attempt. Um, anyway, uh, what did you ask? I, I got lost in that. Well, we're getting to the, the on the fifth time. I was asking. Oh, did you, I did know? You know no, this, I thought every time. Every, every, every time. time I cube, I thought this is the time. The first time, the second, the third, the fourth, in the middle. You know, I don't know. I don't know everything that's going on on the boat. They don't want to share all that with me. If you know, we've been pulled off course. You, They're going to try to navigate it back. If a if a if a storm comes in, literally, and on our fourth attempt, a storm came in in two minutes. We had no more lightning. Circled us out at the horizon. I saw that while I was swimming, but I didn't know what's happening. Storms converged in for it's the tropics. It's crazy in the summer. Storms converged in from every direction. All of a sudden, we're in an eight to nine foot sea. But the boats are thrashing around. They tell me to go out and swim with the shark divers for a while. Just get away from the boats. Um, you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. I mean, you know, it's it's just it it it's it's crazy. The people who had children, you know, said, "I want to stop this right now." There's no coast guard who's going to come out and save you. You know, somebody, God forbid, was thrown overboard in that wind with the boats jiggling up. We lost well, one of our hulls of a catamaran filled with water. The, the Voyager, we thought it was going down. Um, you know, it, 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 there's all kinds of dramas. You think, oh, man, that must be like... You know, if you were with the Miami Herald and you came with us when you were a young guy, you would think, well, I'm, you know, it's kind of inspiring, but I'm just watching the thing is going to be like watching paint dry. I mean, you know, what can I, I'm going to watch this woman for 50 hours, just go to the left arm, the right arm. But actually, it's not like that. When you're on the boat, it's like constant crisis. What's coming next? And, you know, she's having a problem. And how are we going to solve it? And, you know, so I can never touch the boat. I can't get out of the boat. I can't touch the kayaks, but I can tread water and I, and I hear all this stuff. I'm part of solving the issue almost always. But usually every time I thought, we're making it. Yeah, this is the one. We're making it. And I was always shocked when I'd see, I'd be breathing to the left. And even though you're tired and your vision is good, I'd see John Bartlett and Mark Solinger and Bonnie and Candace and all the team huddling together. And I thought, I'd look up. There's no shore. I thought, well, they're not huddling together to celebrate that we're making it. There's some bad news. And they'd bring me over and say, how, how do you feel about going to the Bahamas? And I would say, not good. <laughs> I don't, don't want to go to the Bahamas. They said, well, that's where we're going. Wow. So um, this swims over. But I thought it was going to happen every time. But I'll tell you something. We're pros. Even that last time, when Bonnie saw the lights of Key West in the middle of the night, and that was an emotional moment. I was having trouble. I was, uh, I was cold now. I was shivering. Um, I wasn't swimming. I was stopping, looking at the stars. Thought I saw the Taj Mahal over there. I was very engaged with that for a while. Bonnie kept <laughs> bowing the whistle. We got to swim because if I don't north, I'm going east. That Gulf Stream is dragging you. Every second you stop, it's dragging you. These, so you try to make those stops real fast. And I was, I was suffering. I was, I was out of it. I didn't know who I was anymore and what we were doing, why we were out there. I kept asking Bucko, what, what, what is, what is this all about? Who are these people? You know, you're in full-fledged hallucinations. And Bonnie blew the whistle, made me come over and said, what's up there? Come on, look up. 
tread, tread water, feather up a little bit. What do you see? I said, Bonnie, my vision's shot. I don't see anything. Oh, I float back and look up. I said, I see the stars. She said, not up. Oh, straight across the horizon. What do you see? I said, I don't see anything. It's black. It's a, it's a black, black canvas, black sea, black sky. Well, wait a, wait a second. Are, are my eyes kidding me? Or, or is there a little white little filament, a line going through the horizon. Is the sun coming up? The third day is coming. The sun's coming. It's going to warm my body. It means we hope. When we see the sunrise, we feel hope. She said, it's better than the sun. Those are the lights at Key West. Now, we had a long way to go. It turned out we had 15 hours to go, but she made the executive decision to tell me before, way before it was over, to give me hope. And, I, and the lights were there. But, you know, over, over the water, sound and, and, and light also are, you know, distorted. So it was much farther away than we thought. Well, they knew on the boat than I thought. But it doesn't matter. It gave me hope. It gave me something like if I just – but we went right back to being a professional team. The sharks, the jellyfish, the storm protocol, the – Trying to get food down, we went right back to, we haven't made it. Don't, don't count any chickens, you know, until you touch terra firma. This thing is not over. Let's not blow it. Were you still able to sing to yourself at that time? Oh, or- yeah. That's, that's what gets me through. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you know, it's funny. I have a, a good friend who's a, a big-time Everest climber. He's climbed all the major peaks, Ed Vistiers. Do you, do you know his name? No. Oh, he's a great guy, and um, he climbs without bottled oxygen. So that's the real way. You know, he says, look, again, I understand why people don't want to suffer, but you're if you're at 28,000 feet, but you're using oxygen, you're not really at 28,000 feet because the oxygen is that thin at that level. Now you've made yourself you know, in a, in a false way, have your lungs feel that you're really only at 18,000 feet because you're taking in that much oxygen. He said, I climb these big peaks the real way, you know, the way the body is going to have to be without a big bottle of oxygen attached to you. But I said to Ed, you know, I sing all these songs when you're going up Everest and things are tough, there's snowstorms and whiteouts and each step you know, is is like a twenty five breath moment that you have to stand there, compose yourself. Do you sing any songs? He said, Yeah, I only have one. I said, What is it? He <laughs> says, I sing, Oh, the bear went over the mountain. <laughs> oh, no. I said, No, no, Ed, you got to have a bigger <laughs> repertoire now than that. But it. I had eighty five songs. I'm singing the Everly Brothers. I'm singing Janis Joplin, Neil Young, the Beatles. Uh, Joe Cocker was a favorite. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. <laughs> Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a coming home. My baby, she wrote me a letter. That song, even just that, that one chorus would take me for hours and hours. I was in it. I, just, I could hear Joe Cocker with his odd body at Woodstock moving around and all those songs. They're my generation. They got me through hours and hours. So what was it like as you're approaching the shore? Because when, and I don't know if you look at it on video much now or if you did a lot then, but it, it really looks like you're like having a, a hard time, like understanding what, like, where exactly you are and getting your footing, making this transformation from like swimming to walking. 
Well, yeah. I mean, you have sea legs. I mean, even a pool swimmer, if you do a six-hour swim and you're in the supine position and your legs haven't been pressing against anything, you know, with contractions, that's what swimming... A lot of swimmers aren't good at land sports because they're they're floating those legs. The arms are strong and they're grabbing something. They're grabbing resistance to move you forward. The legs are not. They're, they're gently, you know, kicking back there. So a lot of swimmers don't play tennis or basketball or other sports too well because they haven't been versed in, in pushing off and grabbing something with their feet and their leg muscles. And so, you know, if you're going to swim in a pool for six hours and you even, you know, do push off the walls, a lot of swimmers get out and they're a little, they look a little tipsy. They're, they're, they're not solid under oh, their wow. legs. So well, you try swimming fi- and then add, add, you know, tidal action and, and current pull. You're not in a flat pool where your head is nice and steady the whole time. You're, you're jerking around and, and, and salt swallowing salt water and you're in a whole different universe. Not to mention all the hallucinations I talked about. You've been out of it, you know, for, for a long time. So to stand up, you don't, don't just, just snap back to be being a land beast in a second. And I'm sure that I was uh, somewhat delirious with the, with the duress of it all. Um, but, you know, I never, I will admit to you, Cal, that often when I was doing the long, lonely hours of training, you know, I like to think of myself as something of an orator. I would, I would think would, of, you what, what am I going to, what am I going to say? What's the grand oration <laughs> I'm going to give at the end? Robin Roberts uh, was all involved with it from Good Morning America. And I thought when I get out, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at the camera and say, Robin, and I'm going to deliver the the, the great oration of what it is to never give up. Um, but I never, ever swear to you, I never rehearsed or thought of those words I actually said. So I might have been out of it. I might have been physically spent and mentally delirious. But somehow, I, when I watch the words, I think, wow, that was pretty good. I came up with that. And you could see I was about to faint by the last word. But I said, I got three messages as if I carried them across that sea. <laughs> One, never, ever give up. And that crowd, they wept. They didn't cry. They wept because they felt it for their own lives. Isn't that what we all, you know, what, isn't that the bottom of all of our success in life is you just don't give up, whether you're beating cancer or you've had a tough time at work or you've got a kid who's a, who's a real problem. You just don't give up on that kid. And one day that kid's going to be okay because you didn't give up on him. So that's the first thing I said. I never practiced those words. I never said those words out loud. Never, ever give up that way. Second thing I said was, you're never too old to chase your dreams. And here I am standing there at 64 doing something uh, of a you know, an epic nature. And the third thing I said, but, but I could, I could see I was withering, you know, I almost went to my knees by the end of it was, it looks like a solitary endeavor, but trust me, it takes a team. And, uh, so I'm, something must've been fairly cogent in my brain to be able to say those things at the end. It's five years now. When you look back on it, has it evolved in, in your mind, or do you, I, I know now you are doing epic walking adventures. Are you always like looking ahead or do, will you take a minute to look back? Well, there are two things. One is I don't want to ever be stuck in the past. You know, um, it, you know, it's, it's one thing. I'm, I'm always thrilled if I meet an Olympian or an Oscar winner or, you know, anybody who's achieved a, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, 
you know, they may be sick of talking about those events, but, you know, I'm, I'm only human. I want to ask them about that gold medal moment. Right. And so, you know, people do still bring up the Cuba swim. People have, I didn't, but people have called it an Amelia Earhart type, type moment, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm always, um, you know, very respectful if it comes up like that. But I'll tell you the truth, Cal, I don't flash back five years later on the triumph of it and, and what's come of it for me in terms of opportunity. What what fills me up are the things I said on that shore. And I want to remember those values. One of the reasons I did this swim wasn't to set some new athletic record. It was to spark that that living to the nth degree spirit in myself. And when I got done with the swim, if I could make it to continue that spirit going, you know, I'm not swimming from Cuba to Florida anymore. So, you know, no matter what I do, probably I won't be training as hard as I did there. Frankly, on an ego sort of level, if I were younger, I'd try to become the first female Navy SEAL. But number one, the Navy <laughs> wouldn't want me. <laughs> number two, I don't want to be in the Navy. And number three, I'm, I, I am too old to qualify for that. But, but anyway, I won't be doing anything probably physically as tough as training for that swim again. But I want to be that person. I want to be that person of resolve and shooting for things that I probably would fail at because I'll discover myself on the way and I'll bring everybody around me up and rise up as we go. Those are the things I remember about the swim. I never think about, oh, remember when I, when I kind of stumbled up onto that beach? Remember all the people who are screaming? I can remember it, but for some reason I don't flash back to that. I don't have dreams about it. I look at the clock when I'm sleeping and it might say 2.22 a.m. And what I think of is, remember, you never once slept in. You never once, who, who's in charge of my training schedule? Me and Bonnie. I never once said to Bonnie, you know, I'm, I'm still a little sore from yesterday. You know, let's skip a day. Let's go to the movies. Let's have some fun. Let's eat some eat some, uh, have some, some pizza, some, uh, yeah, chocolate cake or something. Let's, <laughs> let's do something like that. Never once. And so that is still the dedication and the drive I want to have toward living a big, good life. Still, that's what of the Cuba swim is there for me. But you asked the second part of that question. Well, what was now it? you're taking people on epic yeah, yeah, walks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's behind this? You know, it's, it, and it's not only the epic walks ever walk, is a, it's an initiative. You know, we become a very sedentary society. We sit in front of our screens, we eat fast foods. You know, it's just, you you go to any country in the world, Australia, England, France, Thailand, people walk everywhere. We don't, except if you're living maybe in New York City. We drive everywhere. I have friends here in LA to drive, go get the newspaper. You can see the newspaper stand from where where they start to drive from. It's right over there in Beverly Hills, but they drive over to get it. So, you know, our goal is it's not the same as the Cuba swim. It just can't be. You know, that was a that was a, a unique, extreme event. Walking isn't extreme. But the point was, Bonnie and I got chatting when it was over and we said, but how can we lend this epic feeling to people that they would train for something that they would they would walk under the blue sky like i used to talk about the blue jewel of the planet well i was referring to the ocean but we also have the blue sky when you walk under the blue sky and you see powerful evergreens along the washington coast you start thinking of life that like i did this blue jewel of a planet and you start imagining who you can be and maybe if you're 68 
68, almost 69, imagining how much time you might have left and what your priorities are going to be. It gets deep. So it's about health. Everwalk's about health. We're starting a walk here in LA and around the country with ambassadors called First Saturdays. So the first Saturday of every month, we try to gather a little group. It might be 16 people one day, 52 people another Saturday, and we walk together. So the city of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti's office, and especially an area here called Mid-City, which is where we're doing these walks, um, they're not going to be our partners. Hopefully, we're going to grow that. I hope to talk to you five years from now, and you say, whoa, that Everwalk thing really took off. You did, I mean, people were walking already. People had their Fitbits, 10,000 steps a day. Lots of people, the Avon walks are brilliant. We don't want to d- detract from any of that. Walking is, has been, you know, on a, shall we say, treadmill for a while. We want to take that wave of walking and turn it into a tsunami. We want to have millions of Americans walking and foreigners would come here five years from now and say, you know those sedentary Americans? They walk everywhere. We see them all. They're walking after dinner. They, they walk with their neighbors. They walk their kids to school. They walk to get their groceries. And um, we want to be part of that movement. That's all. But th- these are some long walks. We do, we do. We do a lot of things like the first Saturdays or not. Um, and we have ambassadors now. We're about to launch a map. And so, you know, you'd, you'd, have a, you'd have a colored pin in South Orange, New Jersey, and in Chicago, and in Marin County, and in Naples, Florida. All those people are our ambassadors. And they're developing groups of hopefully at least 20, hopefully then 50. And they're walking every first Saturday with each other. We'll do Facebook lives with them saying, hey, where are you today? What's what's the weather like? Give, give us a story of one of your walkers. We have a woman who lost 126 pounds. Not 26, 126 in order to join us on our first walk, L.A. to San Diego. She's coming with us again. Next week, we're going to be walking. And I know the, the podcast airs a bit after that, so I'm out of time, but, uh, timeline. But our third epic walk, we did first L.A. to San Diego. Then we did Boston to Maine, iconic lighthouses of New England. And now our next one is from just across the the Canadian border. We're going to walk across the border. I think that's funny to walk through customs with your passports. And then we're going to walk down to Seattle, you know, with the Puget Sound and whales jumping and Mount Rainier. And, you know, it's like love, love the country, be in awe of what we, this life we get to live. Yeah, it's good for your health, of course. But we're more about have an epic experience. Find out who you are. Be with people who are not from your regular community. And, and, and we, we do a kitschy little thing. We have a plastic campfire. You know, we got it. We got it on Amazon. It's like a little couple plastic logs with a plastic fire. We don't make a real fire. We're too tired. So we, at the end of walking 20 miles a day, we grab that campfire out of the truck. We throw it in the middle and all of us tell a couple of stories, you know, and, uh, people are, people are into it. So, uh, here we go. You know, let's see if Everwalk is going to grow into what Bonnie and I envision. You know what? I'm going to look at my schedule but I'm going to do this with you. I don't know where, don't know that's when. That's right, that's right. But I'm going to do this with you. Well, you're right here in L.A. Right. And so, and our good buddy, mutual friend, Kathy Sharp Ross, comes walking with us there every Saturday. She's, she's dedicated. She's my buddy. And so, um, you know, October 6th will be our next one. But we'll have walking all over the country. People, check out everwalk.com and find your first Saturday place close to you. I will be with you. There you go. And you have made my day, my week, my month, my year, just sitting down with you. Thank you, Cal. It's been extraordinary. 
I'm flashing back to 1978, and it it makes me feel so proud to be with you and to know everything I had to come through in order to be mm-hmm. sitting in this seat with you. Mm, you bet. Congratulations, by the way, on your career. There's it's, been a lot of reinvention. Is that right? Reinvention. Yeah. And sixties. Um, that's where it's at. We'll right see. Right on. And we'll see where it's going to take me. But I'll always have you in mind. Whenever something difficult comes up, I'll know I'll be able to get through it because you found a way. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, you honor me by having you on the podcast. You do, you do great work. I'm glad to be in the fold with your other interviewees. Well, thank you. The best is yet to come. I'm coming walking with you. Okay. Thanks, Cal. I'll see you then. Cheers. Okay, bye. That about wraps it up. Just being around Diana makes you believe that you can make it past any obstacle and achieve anything you can dream. But you also understand how important it is to find the right people to help you execute. And that's why I want to thank Tim Ferriss for helping me start this podcast. He nudged me to do what I was born to do. I also want to thank Kathy Sharp Ross and Kevin, the manager, for helping me arrange the conversation you just heard. Also, Luz Fleming for the audio work, putting it all together. And I want to thank you for joining me on the journey. Please send along photos of the city or town you listen to Big Questions in. I'm creating a collage and would like to include your photos. I'd also like to know how you came upon Big Questions. I'm sure many of you will say it was through Tim Ferriss' podcast, but if there are other ways, please let me know. As usual, I'm curious. See you next week. Cheers.